0: Welcome to Finding The Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euroz Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today, and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life, to get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding The Front host. Tim Banfield.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. For those listening who are not familiar with Euros Hartley's, Euros Hartley's is a leading financial services and wealth management firm. We combine our 85 years of investment wisdom to offer dedicated financial services, including institutional sales, where we are the eyes and ears on the ground for our institutional clients around Australia and globally. Research, corporate finance, where we have a long history of assisting small to mid-cap WA companies throughout their business life cycle. And private wealth, where we seek to deliver sound financial outcomes for our range of valued clients over the longer term. If we can assist you with your requirements, please don't hesitate to reach out. Our contact details and lots of information is available on our website At www.eurosheartleys.com. What an opportunity we have on this show to have as our very special guest Mr. David Maxwell, the Managing Director of ASX listed oil and gas producer Cooper Energy, stock code COE. David has achieved a massive amount in a career spanning more than 25 years as a leader with a record of delivering material value for resource companies in the field of liquefied natural gas, gas and oil. In this wide-ranging conversation, David shares his insights into his time with Woodside Energy, which accumulated in him being appointed Director of the Gas and Marketing Business Unit and a member of the Woodside Executive Committee of just five people, which was responsible for the strategy, planning and management of this major company. David's impact during his time with Woodside didn't go unnoticed as he was awarded the Australian Gas Association Silver Flame Award for significant contribution to the gas industry, a seriously major achievement. David was also part of the multinational oil and gas company BG Group, formerly known as British Gas, to build their Asia-Pacific liquid natural gas presence. His rise and success at the company was outstanding and he shares the challenges and opportunities that he's presented with. David has been the managing director of Cooper Energy for more than 10 years. In 2019, he was awarded Western Australia's prestigious John Doran Lifetime Achievement Award for his contribution to the Australian oil and gas industry. As is well known, there is uncertainty across the globe and here in Australia around the supply and cost of energy. The current situation in Victoria around the supply of gas is a case in point. David has some captivating insights into the oil and gas industry, including his views on the current situation surrounding a shortage of gas, particularly with Cooper Energy operating two gas hubs out of South Eastern Australia. So without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, Mr. David Maxwell. Welcome, David, and thanks very much for taking the time out to join us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. I know we've taken a couple of attempts, but we've finally got here, and it's so good that you could fit us into your very busy schedule. So, um, thanks a lot, David.
2: Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Uh, It's great to have you along. So, as we've spoken about before, we came to air. There's so much we can talk about, David, and particularly given your deep understanding of the energy markets and where we currently are in this in this world we live in. But particularly in this world of energy uncertainty, there is so much to discuss. But look, before we do, and one of the main ideas of finding the front is to be able to take some time out and learn about your background, your life, your career, and particularly what shaped you as a person on your road to becoming the leader that you are today and, and doing the homework and looking at your background. You certainly have built an amazing career, and it's, it's going to be great to go into it. So I'm really, really excited about this. And doing the homework, I noticed that you were born in New Zealand.
2: It's unfortunate, isn't it? Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> no, I'm a Kiwi by birth, and I owe a lot to New Zealand. That was where I was educated. Yes. Fantastic education system, fantastic health system. But the minute I got to Australia, I realised this was, this was the future.
1: So we'll get to the point when you came to Australia, but so you grew up as a
2: family of six? A family of six, four children. Yeah, yeah. I was the eldest. Yes. And a brother and then a sister and another young brother.
1: And tell us a little bit about
2: that. What did your dad do for a living? Uh, my father had one job his whole life. Well, Is that so right? One job. He worked for one company his whole life. He worked for the Union Steamship Company, and he'll tell you he started counting washers in the warehouse and then worked his way through the organization to be running the organization for a period just before he retired. I mean that's the way careers were in yes. in those days. Yes. And I think that that discipline and he always wanted to go to university but he was never able to. And I think that's that's one of the things that uh, well when we talk about legacy which for me is important personally uh, that's that's one of the legacies he's left, he's left for me. Um, yeah. And he was very keen that I, as the eldest, headed off to university.
1: And that clearly set an example for you too, growing up, and I'm sure for your brothers and sisters. But
2: well, as it turned out, I was the only one that did go to university. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> the others found they had skills and in a way they went in different areas. But I think university was a pivotal time in my life, it opened up my eyes as to what's out there. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to say I was a country kid, but we came from a small town just out of Wellington.
3: Well,
1: tell us a little bit about that. You went to primary school in Wellington?
2: I went to primary school uh, in a suburb of Wellington, a suburb called Upper Hutt. Well, I started actually at primary school in Auckland. Right. And then dad with work got moved to Wellington, so the family traipses down to Wellington and primary school in Upper Hutt and then went to, we used to call it college in New Zealand, but secondary school Yes. in Upper Hutt. And then we, Dad got promoted and we could buy a bigger house and so we moved to another suburb, which meant that I also moved schools. And I did most of my senior schooling at a place called Tawa, Tawa College.
1: Your father working at Union Steamship Company. That was a very well-known company, wasn't it? Within it was.
2: within New Zealand, it was yes. a very well-known company, and it ran the ships, the bulk of New Zealand trade outside of New Zealand. But then it also, what it was famous for was what they called the Inter Island Ferry, or the trans, ran between Wellington and, and Christchurch, or right. Wellington and Littleton. And some of the things I remember, uh, you'd be too you'd be too young to know this, Tim, but. There was a storm uh, when I was at school. And Wellington's known for its wind. It's called Windy Wellington. Right. There was a storm. And the ship found it on the rocks. And I think there was a number of people killed. Although well, I don't think there was. There was a number of people killed. I can't remember exactly how many. But I'll never forget that. And the market left on on Dad. Yeah. And how he managed it. It was... Yeah, now that I think about it, I haven't talked about it too much. But it's one of those things in life that you... That leaves a mark leaves us leaves a big mark. Yeah. And the United Steamship Company was was known for its managing this freight in and out of New Zealand and moving people around.
1: And tell us a little bit about your mum. She I mean she was clearly flat out with four kids.
2: Yeah, mum was uh, mum was English by birth. She was an only child. Right. Came from Worthing, Sussex in England and dad met mum uh, he went to the UK when he was in his early 20s on a ship called the Tofua. It was eight weeks there, and he was there for six months training. Um, And while he was there, met mum, married her, and brought her out to the colonies. Um, (laughs) And so mum, when we were, I was five, my brother was three, and I think my sister was two. Mum took the three of us kids back to England on a ship, was six weeks there, and we were there for three months, and then six weeks back. And Dad couldn't, to uh, Dad couldn't go. We weren't, We weren't able to afford for him to come as well and take that time off work. Yeah. Uh, but Mum, before she met Dad, was the the secretary for a senior executive at Rothschilds. Um, oh, is that right? <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. So uh, her career was you know, typing and shorthand, and yeah, yeah looking after the senior executives. But once the children came along, once she came to New Zealand, she did a lot of charity work, but it was really family and charity.
1: And do you look back on that time growing up in New Zealand fondly, David? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah.
2: jeepers. Right from when I was a little tacker, six years old, you know, running out, playing rugby in the frost with bare feet, you know, yeah. um, knitted, knitted <laughs> jumpers all the way through. It was a, it was a great upbringing, um, because you had the mix of the country yeah, and small, I say cities, they weren't cities the way we know cities today, but to us they were big. And it was, a, it was an adventure lifestyle, and growing up in that environment as a kid was fantastic.
1: Tell me a little bit about school. So did you end up enjoying school? And I know we'll get to university, because it's a significant part of your life, but did you enjoy going to school?
2: I went to school more for fun than learning. I yeah, think, yeah. Um, until I got to college, I, I always I did enough, but sport and outdoor activities were were our thing. I remember we had to do an IQ test when we went from primary school to college. I did this IQ test and I ended up being graded in a class which was a couple of grades above all my mates and. I got really upset about this because <laughs> I thought, jeepers, this is, you know, I'm not with my mates anymore. And I think it was one of the first times in life when I realized, hang on, maybe there's a bit more to this than, than just having fun. And that was when I did start to, I'm not going to say I knuckled down, I really didn't knuckle down until my last year of school, but I, I realized that, yeah, I could probably pass some exams. I could probably do okay here. Give this a shot. Give this a shot. Yeah. (laughs) I could probably do a bit better than 45 or 50. Just enough to get by. Just (laughs) enough to get by. That's right.
1: (laughs) So the question we often ask on finding the front, and I must say it's a question that we get a lot of feedback around, is did you know what you wanted to do when you were leaving school and that transition from school to university? Did you have any ideas? And had, knowing where you ended up in this, an absolute expert in the field of energy, but particularly gas at this point, oil and gas.
2: No, I didn't have any idea. No. I mean, if somebody had said "But I'm, if somebody had said, this is what you're going to be doing in twenty, thirty years time, I would have asked them what they were drinking. No, no, I didn't. I remember the final year of school, they used to call it seventh form, which was equivalent of year 12 in Australia. Right. I'd gone into the seventh form thinking, well, I'll do this just to have another year of sport at school. And I'd passed my university entrance. So I, would, I had the qualification to go to university. But in that holidays between sixth form and seventh form, my friend and I had gone out labouring and we'd earned a bit of money. And suddenly the idea of a bit of money and what you could do with it was, was quite attractive. I remember having an argument with my father, saying, no, I don't want to go to seventh form. I don't want to go to university. I'll go and do a trade. And dad, And I think it comes back to what I said earlier about university and himself. It was one of the few real strong arguments we had, but he wasn't going to budge. Yes. Son, you're going to to finish seventh form, and you're going to have a crack at university. And when it came time to finish seventh form and select what I was going to do at university... I remember looking at all the different programs and what probably attracted me to the course I took. I could live away from home in a, on campus, about 180, 200 kilometres from home, and it was a completely different, it was a new lifestyle. It was an adventure. That probably attracted to me. Yes. attracted me more than, than the idea of going to study. And the course I took, these days you'd call it engineering commerce, but they called it Bachelor of Technology in those days. And uh, I think I was attracted to it. Well, I know I was attracted to it because it afforded me a lifestyle. It afforded me to, to get out and do something a little as bit. As an adventure. As an adventure. Yeah. Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't, the career wasn't uppermost in my mind at the time, for sure.
1: But I noticed that you ended up coming out of it with honours. Yeah. I
2: got a bit better as I went through. I started yeah. off, I mean, it's a classic. It's sort of the same, same theme, I think. I think my first year I got two C's and a couple of C pluses and it was a course where you had to pass all of the units in one year to progress to the next year if you failed one unit you had to repeat the whole year and as i went through i ended up finishing with Bs and As yes and i guess i think that was probably me getting a bit used to the idea of study and what's needed but also when you know you can do something or when you've got a bit more confidence it's surprising how much further you can go? Yes, and I think that probably was what happened through my four years of university. And then I was having such fun at the time. Were you enjoying the course? I enjoyed the course. I enjoyed the lifestyle. <laughs> uh, oh, look, we've got there's a group of friends who I went through university with, and we hadn't seen a lot of us hadn't seen each other for 20-25 years, and we got back together again about fifteen years ago. And it was like old times, and now we do it once a year. Yeah. Well, without COVID, we do it once a year. And I think the reason we do it is because, for all of us, it was such a formative period in our lives. Yeah. And what different people are doing in that group is is quite amazing. But uh, did I enjoy it? Yes, Yes, I did. I did enjoy it so much so that when it came to the finish, I had a scholarship to go to Rhode Island University in the States. Right. I had a dilemma because I was playing reasonably good rugby and if I went to the States, that was going to finish that for sure. I was never going to go on and play super representative rugby but I was playing a good standard. And enjoying, and enjoying, enjoying it. it, yep. And I was enjoying some other parts of life as well at the time and the professor who headed up the school that I was in or just happened to be also the president or the, one of the senior members of the rugby club He said, oh, look, son, why don't you do a PhD at Massey? I mean, what he had his eye on was sticking around for rugby and getting a PhD out of me. And as it turned out, that's what I started to do. And then about nine, 12 months into it, I realised, hang on, this is not what I really want to do because all I'm going to do with a PhD is be good for an institution and that's not me. Right. I want to get out and do things. Into uh, commerce. instant commerce in some way. Yes. So I converted it from a PhD to a master's. Right. And so uh, got out and moved on.
1: And you maintained that stream though in industrial management and engineering. Yes. Yes. yes.
2: I did. Yeah I actually went and worked for a company which is linked to a Japanese trading house and that was my first taste of what the rest of the world outside New Zealand looks. I mean i travelled a little bit with sport and with the family. Yes. But that was my first taste of the rest of the world looks like was working with a Japanese trading house, and that eventually was what brought me to Australia.
1: Well, that's a great part to sort of link in and transition. But what I've taken out of it too is you—you you had a love of rugby, and apart from the academic side, it's clear to me that you also valued the the team element and the power of team and the importance of friendships and networks and and that sort of thing, which has carried you through your life. Fair to say. Oh, That's where it very, all developed. Very,
2: very true, very very true. There's yeah. a book which my wife bought for me which those that work with me now are asked to read it. And it's a book called Legacy. And it's a book about the All Blacks and the I think it's 13 core skills or core elements of the All Blacks and how they can apply how that can be applied to management. And it's respecting what you do and realizing that the role that It's a team effort. Yes. And the role that you're filling is really to make it better for those that come after. And in All Black, you don't actually, you have a number, but you don't, that jersey is not yours. You're minding it for the one that comes after you. And I think the concept of that is, when you apply it to business, is fantastic because what that does is it makes you think that I want this to be better than it was when we started well, I want to create something that wasn't there before that then provides opportunity for those that come after. And I think there is a strong link between team, legacy, and true culture, adherence to clear values, and how my life's unfolded for sure.
1: Jeez, thanks for sharing that. I know that value element is very strong within Cooper Energy, and I saw the values, and we can go through them later on, but you can see where it's originated. So, early 20s, off you go to Australia. Now, at this stage, have you met Anne? And for the listener, Anne is, is David's wife, of which he's got two wonderful children, Sam and Sarah. But I was just interested, this change to come to Australia and
2: where are we at your life at that point? I came to Australia. I, got, I came to Melbourne. I flew into Melbourne on a, on a Monday. It was the weekend of the Moomba Festival. Right. <laughs> and for a little boy from the bush this was pretty good yeah this was (laughs) (laughs) jaw-dropping and i went to work in melbourne for about 18 months and got transferred to sydney to look after the same organization in look after the sydney office
1: and this is with the japan trading house house, that's
2: right and then at that stage i realized that hang on i wasn't going to i'd move reasonably quickly in that role and had a lot of fun and realized I wasn't going to be doing this for the rest of my life and took a break uh, for three months because back after university in New Zealand, we feel like we're at the bottom of the world. So when you finish University in New Zealand, everybody goes on their overseas experience and I never did that. I mean, mine was to move permanently pretty much from New Zealand to Australia. Right. And I hadn't had much of a break between university and work. So I took three months off and went up north. Yes. Northern Queensland, had a ball. And came back, started work with CSR. They had recruited me to do a job, be trained in Australia, and then go back to New Zealand to look after the marketing for a pulp and paper business that they were developing called the Baygent Pulp Project. Right, And this was, for me, it was just the new world was opening up. And there was an economic downturn. The pulp and paper project got put on the shelf, and... CSR turned to me and said, look, we have just bought an oil and gas company based in Adelaide called Deli Petroleum, and they're at a very exciting stage of their lives. We don't have many people. Do you want to go to Adelaide and work in oil and gas? And, and that, was, that was the start of it. That's how it started. That's how it started. As yeah. simple as that. That was fate. It was fate. Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah.
1: So this whole career that unfolded started with CSR and the, and the pulp and paper mill ending its life. Correct, <laughs> and yeah. you've so been out, transferred out
2: Adelaide. of out of out of one lost opportunity comes another one. Sliding doors. Yes, that's right. Very true.
1: It ultimately, became Santos.
2: Dalai was a partner with Santos. Right. Um, there was a multitude of partners, but the two main partners, Santos was the largest, and then and then Dalai. And at the time, they were developing the that was called the Cooper Basin Liquids Project, which is what Moomba is today. Yes. And I just remember having my eyes opened, the size of the plant, the amount of dollars. And I went there, and my first task was a gas price arbitration. So that's the start of my link with the gas business. And at this stage, Moomba out of South Australia was supplying all the gas to South Australia and all of the gas to New South Wales. And it was a gas price arbitration which went for a long time, but it just embedded you in the business. And I was blown away by the idea, the impact that this business could have on people's lives. And I was hooked at that point in the energy business in particular. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: So that being hooked, your career then transitioned. So it's marketing, commercial and business development, senior executive roles within CSR, Barrick Energy, Santos, which we alluded to. Woodside and the BG Group. So I just wanted to possibly drill down on how it started with Santos, which was a marketing, business development, and planning style role, which then started, which was some four years of your life, transitioning into Woodside, which was a big chunk. That's 10 years. What you've done through that period, and this is, we're not even at BG Group at that point, right? But you've really explored the full spectrum Hmm. of liquefied natural gas, gas, marketing, clients, domestic supply. So I just wanted to sort of get into that journey because it's really relevant when we get to what's going on in the world.
2: Well thank you. I think I'll just go back one step. Delhi was owned by CSR for about seven years and I had worked my way up through the organisation and myself and the CEO of Deli at the time, a guy called Fraser Ainsworth, had to work out what to do with CSR's oil and gas investment. Right. And it was getting ready to list it. Uh, And then SO or Exxon came in, made an offer, which was very close to the book value, and so CSR sold out of oil and gas. At that time, Anne and I decided that and sorry, and while I was at Delhi, I had met Anne. In right, fact, I met, okay. I met, I met her through a, through a gas price arbitration, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> Is that right? And then we, I took a job in Perth with the Barrick Group, Dennis Horgan. When I exited that, because back in Adelaide we'd worked very closely with Santos, senior executive at Santos at the time, a guy called John McArdle, he was really the patriarch, I think, of the of the Cooper Basin. Had asked me to to come back to Adelaide, so that's we did that's a how trip, it started as we did a trip back across the Nullarbor, built a house that was the house we were going to live in with the children for the rest of our lives. And as as fate would have it, about four years later, Woodside approached me, and we moved back across the Nullarbor.
1: <laughs> so back in back into the west, yeah. So I just want to, for the listener, I just want to give a little bit of a background here because Woodside Petroleum, or which Woodside Energy, but Woodside Petroleum, as it is previously known, at that point is a global energy company.
2: Uh, really focused on the Northwest Shelf and it was starting to break out from its home ground, the Northwest Shelf.
1: And they, but they led the development of liquefied natural gas in Australia?
2: together with the joint venture partners yes. and woodside would not have done what it's done today would not be where it is today without the support of its joint venture partners and in particularly shell
1: yes so those joint venture partners bhp Billiton, bp chevron mimi
2: uh, mimi yeah, mitsui, yeah mimi. it's mitsui and mitsubishi yes and yes. shell yes
1: but it's fair to say david it was one of australia's largest resource development projects
2: Absolutely, I think it was. I think the people, I might have a bias here, but I think the people that discovered and developed the Northwest Shore for Australia's greatest entrepreneurs. Fascinating. When you think what they started from. And Woodside's foundation was off those discoveries, bringing in partners. At one stage, I think BHP and uh, Shell between them had something like 85, 90% of the register. Woodside kept on... The executive, the team, kept on working away, developing, resisted a number of takeovers, a number of attempts. Yes. I mean, it's a great company today. Um, it's Australia's premier oil and gas company. Without, without Well, it's an international oil and gas company now. But the early days, and I came in when we had two trains in the Northwest Shelf, and I was fortunate enough to lead a team that underwrote the third train and so, sorry, the um, third train was under construction. The leader team that then underwrote the fourth and fifth trains, which is really what grew Woodside and grew the Northwest Shelf and, to be honest, the rest of the LNG industry in Australia.
1: Yes, yes. Well, it ended up supplying, it was the largest supplier of ga- domestic gas in WA. Oh,
2: well, for a long time. For they a long do- time. Dominated. 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 Yeah, yeah. And I, that's where I started. and I headed up the uh, uh, Woodside, brought me back to Perth from Santos to head up the domestic gas marketing business. It was called North West Shelf Gas. Yes. Which was supplying all the West Australian consumers.
1: So you're sort of domestic partners, in, and you led the team in handling the marketing and business development around that, and, and you developed Woodside's LNG gas strategy, which all revolved, I mean, at the start with these domestic partners, includes the household names like Alcoa, Alinta Gas, Western Power, Hammersley Iron that stage bhp and i did note that that marketing strategy was around understanding the nature of volume and pricing
2: understanding the customers and yes. understanding the external environment yes that's that's true i think
1: was a huge impact on the wa economy and your role through this was such that and the way i could see it david is that you ended up being the director and general manager for lng and gas and a member of, member of Woodside's five-person executive committee, with the specific responsibility around LNG, gas, and liquids marketing and developing those gas projects. It was an honour.
2: What was, a what a role! It was <laughs> it was it was a it was, a, it was an honour. Fantastic job. Had the opportunity to spend time with some very very smart, fun people, and you knew particularly when you were dealing in LNG and you were dealing with the Japanese, you were doing something that was making a hell of a difference to people in other parts of the world. Not just in Japan, but back in Australia. I remember one of the things that motivated me um, when we were talking about trains four and five was some of the stories that people told me from the very, very early days, way before my time at Woodside, and how their lives had changed because the family had moved because of the opportunity that the North West Shelf Project had created for them, yes. and Dad suddenly was able to do things, which meant the children were able to do things, which meant that, you know, the education they got, the health system that they got exposed to, the travel that they were able to do, the opportunities that opened up, and I, I, I found that incredibly motivating, and to be honest, I think it's probably something that uh, it drives you. Yes. Well, in my case, anyway, it it, it drove me. You can for see sure. you were making a real yeah.
1: difference. Yes. yes, yes. To people's lives, when when you look back at that role, and you know, as I said earlier, some ten years of your life, what were the real takeaways outside of? I know you've just said the difference and the impact you had in the WA economy, but the takeaways you took from gas supply, export and domestic supply, and I just because I know this has become a theme, it goes on further and we'll get to BG, but what did you take out here? Because we're in infant stages with Woodside and you
2: would have learnt so much early. The importance of doing it right. Yes. The importance of partnering, not believing that you can do it yourself, that one and one makes a lot more than two. I have to say I learnt to listen. Yes. Because when you're learning, You've got to listen, and when you when your ears are wide open, you're hearing things that you previously haven't haven't heard. Um, and I remember someone telling me once the best way to sell something is to listen through the other person's ears. And what they were saying to me was, understand the message that they're really sending. And when you can understand the message that they're really sending, then you can talk to that message, and it's easy. Yes, and I think. Working with the Japanese in particular gave me the opportunity to further develop that, I'm not going to call it a skill, that capability. I mean, maybe it is a skill. An understanding. Um, an understanding, yeah. An approach is probably yes. the best way. Yeah, It's an orientation. And you start to realise that energy is one of the things that we absolutely need in our lives. And there was, this was happening at a time when Global trade was on the increase. The world was becoming smaller. Yes. Countries were becoming specialists in areas. And it was quite clear to me that Australia had a special strength when it came to energy, and particularly in this case gas, um, because our competitors were typically national oil companies. Right. You know, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, run by national oil companies who made decisions in their country's best interest as distinct from the customers or the, the total energy cycles.
1: And that, that partnership, the joint venture style enabled you to do that. It did. It
2: did. And I think that's one of the things that working closely with the Japanese taught me is the value of partnerships and partnerships, not just joint venture partnerships. Partnerships are also you're partnering with, with your customers. We were writing 20-year contracts, in one case a 30-year contract. And you've got to have a common objective for that 20 years to be successful. You don't want to be fighting for 20 years, that's for sure. And the success of one is dependent on the success of the other. So harmony is important in terms of finding what's the right balance between the customer, the Japanese in this case, and the suppliers, which in our case were six. Six large corporations. Yes. Well, Woodside was the smallest by a long shot.
1: The word strategy gets thrown around a lot in business. But in this case, strategy means everything when you're doing 20 to 30 year deals. And you must have had an alignment with the customer slash equity holder, joint venture partner, that it was developed in, I would say, quite a number of meetings where they, you knew what their demand was going to be over that long term. and. What your supply was looking like, and right, can we come to some sort of a
2: deal here? Yeah it was interesting.
1: the strategy play it this, does it yeah. does
2: play out and it, it is you did right it, its strategy is a big part of it. in those days, the Northwest shelf the the sellers, as they were referred to, the six companies, all sold jointly, and the buyers, and there was eight buyers, Japanese buyers, all bought jointly. So you had to have a coalition of the willing on both the buyer right. side and the seller's side. And this was a situation that I stepped into. And at the time, Japan was going through a disaggregation of their energy business. So people that were buying LNG collaboratively together in the market were competing with each other. And it became quite clear to me. I mean, when I got involved looking after LNG marketing into Japan, they have been going at it for two or three years and just continually falling short. And I went in and tried to understand why that was the case. And it became quite clear to me the reason was that on the other side, we didn't have a united buyers group. We had some that didn't want to buy, we had some that did want to buy, and they were each comp- and they were all competing with each other. So we had you know, eight competitors. Well, it was, I think, three gas utilities and five electricity utilities. So five electricity utilities who were competing, some of them competing with each other, some of them wanting to grow themselves into the gas business. Right. The gas utilities wanting to grow themselves into the electricity business. Yeah, you know, it's it's not really the recipe for collaboration when you've got everybody trying to compete with each other. Yes. So I figured out pretty early that there was two people that were going to be really, really important and... This idea of joint selling and joint buying wasn't going to last for very long. And so how did I how was I going to break this up? And realising there's probably some people that are going to listen to this and hear the story and uh, remember the time. Yes. But I knew that and it was it was the thinking through of the strategy, thinking through what was needed. I knew there was gonna be some, some bold steps were, were required. And myself and one or two others and a counterpart in Tokyo Electric and a counterpart in Tokyo Gas had a series of meetings and determined that what we needed to do was to break up the buyers and so that we weren't selling one contract to eight buyers, we were selling eight, eight separate contracts and then yeah. everyone could become bespoke. You have to remember that you know, the North West Shelf Project at the stage is supported by banks. It's supported by six organisations who are global, other than Woodside, are global, typically global organisations. And these arrangements are embedded in, yes. in these organisations. And it's through a process of meetings over three months we actually broke up the buyers consortium. And then within two months, after a couple of years of battle, contracts were written and away we went for what then became train four of the North West Shelf. And uh, it was the start of the the change in LNG marketing into that part of the world. And now you see organisations individually. Shell sells their own LNG. They don't sell it together with their partners. No. Woodside sells their own LNG. BP sells their own LNG. Everyone sells. So now you've got... Consortiums have gone. Consortiums have gone. Um, But the consortium was absolutely critical to get the North West Shelf going. But once it's going, you got to realise, you know,
1: it became commercial. Yeah, and it's a bit yep. like
2: growing up, you know, the first <laughs> pair of long pants don't last very long, do they? Um, <laughs> right. And it's it is it is exactly that. And I I think where we are today is a is a very natural step. But it was what started it was breaking up the, the buyers consortium. David, just so that's a long answer to a. Short question. No, but it's
1: very interesting in terms of okay, that's on an export into an international stage. Just explain how Woodside at the time dealt with their domestic gas supply to their customers because I want to circle back to this at some point towards the the back end of the conversation to understand how it works now. You know, so Woodside had domestic customers, we talked about it earlier. How did they allocate versus export?
2: There was a there was legislation in place. Yeah, right. State government. The I forgot the name of it, but um, there was a contract with sequa which then, when sequa got broken up into Alinta and Western Power and Alcoa and a few others, Hammersley Iron, they had took separate contracts. So the again, this, in fact very similar. Right. And it happened before the LNG, so the separate marketing, separate buyers was established then, and then. Once that contract, which was the Northwest Shelf contract, and Woodside had 50% of the domestic business and the other partners had the remaining 50%. Once that contract had worked its way out, then people developed their own gas and the market became a lot more buyers and a lot more sellers. Right. It didn't rely on the big single... Supplier. one, One single supplier, or in this case, the Northwest Shelf. Yes. So you saw others. They saw the Perth Basin and you saw Apache. Yes developing their own gas and Santos developing their own gas. And then now you've got Chevron and BHP and others. Well, now BHP is Woodside, isn't it? But um, they've all developed their own, their own. So you do have now more of a true market with multiple buyers and multiple sellers.
1: That's just a really, really great insight into that world. In that senior role, you then were approached by BG after some 10 years with Woodside to go across to this group. Now we're talking about early 2006 here. I just wanted to quickly provide the listener with a bit of an insight into BG Group because it's not your everyday group. And when we look at David's transition from Woodside across to BG, BG was formerly known as British Gas, a British multinational oil and gas company headquartered in the UK. I thought it was interesting just to give an idea of terms of size and value of this business. It was acquired by Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, for $70 billion in 2016. That was after you left, but it gives you an idea. Prior to that, it was listed on the London Stock Exchange, part of the FTSE 100 Index, operated in 25 countries, produced around 680,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. It continues on. It's a significant company, but BG Group's main business was the exploration and extraction of natural gas and oil and the production of LNG. It sold these products to wholesale customers such as retail gas suppliers and electricity generating companies. What was interesting, it was active around the world, notably key areas of the company included Australia, including the Queensland Gas Company. Now, I just wanted to then enter David. David was brought across to BG Group. Now, you were brought across and were responsible for all of their activities and basically built the BG Group LNG business into the Asia-Pacific region. I've glossed over a little bit, but I just wanted to give a bit of background for, for the listener so that when we come back to where you're at in your transition through your career, we've got a little bit of background here as to why you left such a premium role and such an impactful role within Woodside. To move to BG Group. And that meant moving across to Brisbane, I'd say, too.
2: Actually, it meant moving to Singapore. Singapore, right. Originally. (laughs) Yeah, well, look, I'd been just shy of 10 years at Woodside. It had been fantastic. Woodside had new leadership at the time, and I'd developed the, the gas strategy for Woodside, and we'd just approved the first domestic gas development outside of Western Australia, which was the Otway Project. We had... The strategy for Pluto, which is now an LNG project, was endorsed yes. by the board. And Don Valti, who was the new CEO, was had seen pretty quickly that gas was going to be the future for, for Woodside. And BG came and approached me at, let's call it a convenient time for Woodside and a convenient time for me. Right. As you say, BG wanted to get into Asia-Pacific. BG's business model was a bit different to other LNG companies. They up until that point almost all LNG was sold point to point. What I mean by that is if you were selling LNG out of the northwest shelf, you were selling it to Japan and it would have so many million tons be sold to certain customers and there would be a program over um each set each year of the 10, 15, 20 year contract. So it was point to point it was going from point A where it was produced to point B, where it was unloaded and distributed. BG's model was that the world was the market and they had what they called a flexible LNG marketing model. So they could move, they could take a portfolio approach and substitute a cargo. Well, rather than take this cargo to Japan, we'll take this cargo into Singapore and we'll move another cargo from somewhere else to Japan. They they would optimise across the portfolio. They had a very strong position in the Atlantic, but they didn't have a position in Asia-Pacific. In fact, they had a project which they were involved with in Indonesia, which they sold out of. And so you had one-third of, at the time I think, one-third of the global LNG market was the Atlantic and two-thirds of it was Asia-Pacific. And they were very strong in the one-third, but didn't have a real presence in the two-thirds. And they approached me specifically to build an LNG business in Asia Pacific. And I realised very early that we weren't going to be able to do this just by finding a resource and then building an LNG train. We had to build it at both ends. We had to build it from the supply end and we had to build it from the market end. So we started off with some contracts into Japan out of the portfolio, the BG portfolio. Yes, and then used those to build relationships with customers and get BG known. And um, that was one stream of work um, being run out of Singapore, and the other, and and the US, and the UK. And the other stream of work was understanding where was the lowest cost big gas resources in Asia Pacific. Where was where were the next LNG projects likely to come from? And we this little team of us there was. Four of us, and the, I hope some of them actually get to listen to this. And don't know who they are. We reviewed all of the resources in Asia and Australia Pacific, ranked them, and zeroed in on P and G as the best gas resource, as the next likely gas resource for an LNG project. Went and spoke to All Search, put in place some arrangements with All Search. It was a starter, but it wasn't quite big enough. And so we knew we had to get, there was resource owned and operated by, by ESO, and we knew that we needed to get a piece of that. And so a proposal was taken to SO. Sorry, I should say at this time, P&G Gas was being promoted as gas supply into Australia. Right, And uh, A new pipeline coming from P&G down the Queensland coast and into Moomba there was going to be there was a shortfall of gas foreseen yes. in eastern australia and P G was and uh, all search was pushing that project so we put in front of them economics for an lng project which we thought was much better um, but we needed scale and so we put an arrangement in place with AllSearch and then we went and spoke to eso and eso liked the proposal and said come back in a few weeks time and we'll give you our answer BG went back in a few weeks' time, and SO said, "Yeah, goddamn, we really like this, and we're going to do it ourselves." Oh. And that was the start. That was the start of the LNG project and PNG, which we obviously didn't get a role. Didn't didn't no. get a, didn't, didn't get a Guernsey in that game. <laughs> but so we went to Plan B. Was, was where was the second best um, supply source, and the second best supply source was coal seam gas. Out of Queensland, and um, the issue was an issue that everybody was concerned about: is the calorific value of coal seam gas is lower than the calorific value of conventional gas, typically. So what that means is the heating value. So the the volume, the 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 heat per unit volume was a bit lower, and this was a concern that the Japanese wouldn't, who were or other markets um, wouldn't accept. Um, lng made out of calcium gas because the calorific value was was lower i mean you're heating per unit heating per unit i mean you're shipping less less energy per unit volume and so very cleverly what we did with bg we used the bg portfolio and said well we'll substitute and there was some bg lng which was reasonably close calorific value wise to calcium gas LNG. And so we used the BG portfolio to back up long term take or pay contracts. Yes. And then separately, we went and acquired a piece of Queensland, Queensland Gas. Yes. We acquired 20% of Queensland Gas and together with them started to develop what is now today QC LNG. Yes. And pretty soon after we had acquired that first stake in Queensland Gas, we Made a bid for Origin. BG Group made a bid for Origin and that was because we really could see the size of the resource that Origin was sitting on in coal seam gas. So the concept was to put the QGC gas together with the Origin coal seam gas and uh, make a a bigger project and scale. Uh, There's an economy of scale in in, in the LNG business.
1: So just to pause there, you were really looking here at two major acquisitions.
2: Uh, we did one, and then we were moving on to the second. second one, yes, yes, yes. So yes. yes, yes. we made an offer. We and we were very close. Well, it's a well-told story that the Origin board had given a nod of said yes. Mm, yep, we'll probably sell to BG Group. We put a very healthy price on the table, and just as the board was about to meet, it was twenty-four hours beforehand, Santos announced a transaction where they were selling some of their coal seam gas interest to Petronas and then if you put the dollars per gigajoule alongside that and multiplied that through to the Origin transaction, Origin concluded that BG was getting it for a very good price and the Origin board at the very last minute declined the offer.
1: On the and basis of that santos transaction on the
2: basis well we think it was um it's, <laughs> that's only only the directors that sit around the board table no don't they yeah but it was absolutely yeah i think you have to say it was absolutely and after that origin went out put their assets on the market we looked at them again decided not to bid and bid for the rest of qcg qgc sorry and the first of the LNG projects in Gladstone to FID. So we, we, were, was always, we were always keen to be first because we saw there was a lot of advantage in that. Um, and that would set up the trend for, for those that come after. And then pretty soon after, you had Santos with their project and Origin together with ConocoPhillips and Sinopec, I think it is, with their project. So had we been successful with Origin, you wouldn't have six trains of LNG on Curtis Island off Gladstone. You would probably have you know, maybe four, which Goodness. would be a, to be honest, would be a lot better scenario than what we're dealing with today.
1: Is it quite an interesting period of time, though? In that, in oh, it that was, market, it was
2: crazy. It was crazy times. There was some serious money being made, and it's. I was just reading the newspaper in the weekend. The economic wealth that's been created, off the back of that, for Queensland now. Yes. Now, when I think about it, I mean that's 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 what's motivating. That's what. Um, that's what gets you up in the morning when you can see the those sorts of differences being made.
1: Well, you were a managing director for a BG group for Australia and then post-acquisition of QGC, you are appointed senior vice president. So that puts you on the global stage. Yeah,
2: I had... More, it, once we had FID taken the final investment decision on...
1: Sorry, FID?
2: ...is the final investment decision yeah. for the first of the LNG projects, my job was done. I mean, right. I remember... I had said I would come in for five years and get them going. What I didn't say was I put a plan to the executive of BG Group and they liked it when I first started. And if I looked at that plan and what we delivered after five years, we smashed it. Yeah. But it was a lot of hard work. And the family, I'd moved. and We started in Singapore. We'd ended up in Brisbane. It had been, for me personally, very satisfying. But I was tired. Yes. So I needed a break.
1: Well, it's a great way to transition into your role, which commenced back in November eleven with Cooper.
2: Mm.
1: There's a number of questions that come out of that. How are we going to transition from the mighty Woodside, the mighty BG Group, into a, a smaller company like Cooper, and with the but the skill set goes without saying. You know, you were probably ready in that respect to take on a challenge. How were you thinking at that point, David?
2: Uh, I. I was thinking of retirement, <laughs> um, to <laughs> well, be honest. Yeah, yeah, right. It started out with a conversation that the company needed a bit of a hand. The company at the time had been going for about – Cooper Energy had been listed, I think, in 2002. So it had been going for about nine years. The first five wells they drilled in the Cooper Basin, they had three discoveries, which is amazing. So pretty pretty amazing, uh, yeah. set, set them, set them up with cash flow. And they decided that, they thought, well, hang on, we're an oil and gas company now. We get some people in place. And the organisation over the the eight or so years before I got involved had looked at assets in and had assets in Romania, Poland, Indonesia, Tunisia, and had looked in a number of other countries. But the one that was paying all the bills were these oil discoveries in, in the Cooper Basin. And the international forays really hadn't been successful. So the board was under a bit of pressure. Shareholders were agitating for change. Yes. The chairman at the time and a couple of the directors came in. Indirectly, I was approached to see if I could help. I started off saying, well, I'll give you, I'll write a contract for three months and provide some strategy advice. And after about three or four weeks, I gave them my first cut of the strategy. And turned around and said, well, hang on, we quite like this. And how about staying on for the, for the long haul and running it? And that's what happened. And I'd had a six-month break from BG. And what I learned at BG was where the energy business and particularly the gas business in Australia was going. Yes. And it gave me the work that I'd done or we had done. It wasn't me. It was a team that had done in Australia and around coal seam gas, we'd seen this opportunity that was going to emerge, that gas was going to be really short in, in Eastern Australia and who was going to be there to supply it. Yes. So it was a business to be built. Yes. And so my strategy and my recommendation to the Cooper Energy Board was to get out of all of the international stuff and start to build a business, both market and supply, to supply gas into to Eastern Australia. And full credit to the Cooper Energy board, because part of my recommendation was that they needed to make some major changes people-wise as well. Right. And they all accepted it. Yes.
1: Cooper Energy at that point was, when you say international, to divest out of those international businesses, was that a major task, or was it a, they were quite
2: attractive really. assets? Yeah, I wouldn't know. Wow, well, have to be careful because beauty's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Right. Um, they weren't material assets. Okay. And at the time, Cooper Energy was a company with a market cap of $100 million, $120 Yes. Million, probably the, the biggest, and almost all of that was Cooper Basin and cash. So the assets in Tunisia and Indonesia, Poland and Romania were, no. Okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call them assets of scale by any stretch.
1: Right, okay. So if we go forward through the process, you've taken the role on and you've actually transitioned and seen the opportunity for a tight gas supply and potentially increasing gas prices. That's back then when you, when you arrived, based on your experience with BG Group, which in many ways, you had a lot of clarity around your vision. Fair to say?
2: I think that's... Yes, yes. I certainly had clarity in my head. Yes. And... I remember going and talking to shareholders and saying this is our strategy and they'd look at me and think, ask, you know, what are you smoking? Because you don't have any gas. Yes. But I explained the plan and it was then about implementing the plan and showing how we were implementing it. So it was, it was painting the picture, showing the story and then going out and putting the, putting the bits and pieces in place.
1: David, let's just go back a little bit to Woodside you did get some experience in the Otway back yes. then. Did that give you a hint as to where you were going to start this next um, stage of Cooper? It, it
2: did. It did help.
1: I mean, you've got your BG experience, but that that it, Otway. it did help.
2: But I also will take you right back to the first foray into the oil and gas business. Yes, with Santos and with Dalai and Santos. Right, which was very much on the eastern states gas market. Okay. The domestic gas market as well. So it's a
1: When you are doing the gas price arbitration.
2: That's right. Right and the, and then the gas marketing and gas business development afterwards. Yeah. So it's it it was in my blood. It was in my blood.
1: So you saw this as a bit of a challenge that you really could take on and were fairly confident that there was an opportunity set that needed to be met.
2: I knew there was an opportunity there. The challenge was well how were we going to be able to compete in it? Yes. When we really didn't have the balance sheet and we were going to be growing from ground zero in terms of people with expertise in that area. So it was a case of pulling the team together.
3: And that
1: that was where I think, to me, you reflect back on what we've talked about and that team aspect became incredibly important. That you generated from university, from rugby, from growing up through the Woodside business. And then that team that came together at BG Group—you needed to put together that team for for Cooper.
2: Correct. Yes, and it was it was a team of board level management and staff, and it's not it's not a big team. Today it's probably 120, 130 people. And when I use the word team, people automatically think of people. When I use the word team, I think of how you work. What are you a team about? Yes. You know, whether it's a sports team or a club or at school or whatever, what are the ingredients that are needed to make that team successful? And I had the fortunate opportunity of clearing the slate and outlining the ingredients and then going about putting it in place.
1: So just for the listener, if we could just look at Cooper as it is now, we've got an ASX-listed energy company which generates revenue from discovery, commercialisation and sale of gas to Southeast Australia and the low-cost Cooper Basin oil production in sum. Gas accounts for the major share of the company's sales, revenue production and reserves. So we, if we go through the key elements, we've got gas production, we've got gas project development, gas supply contracts, which is quite interesting when we look at your experience with Woodside and the domestic gas supply. So we've got here contracts for gas supply, household names such as AGL Energy, Alinta Energy, Energy Australia, Visi, and Origin Energy. Gas exploration continues, and we've got oil production out of the Cooper. The company itself is building on that. There's such a foundation. And I know now in recent events, you've now got your two hubs being Gippsland and Otway? Correct. And then we've got the plant.
2: Yes. Right. And so we have two plants now. Two plants. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's where we've got
1: yes. Athena and Orbos. So what we've got here is, a really interesting business in a tight supply market, where we've got pricing, really up for grabs at the moment in a in a period of complete uncertainty. Can we just go back in time a little bit and just say right? Well, with your vision, how this unfolds in terms of where we're at with not only the Gippsland Basin, but then the Otway Basin, and then how you were going to roll this in. Because I can see here, David, you could see this tight supply coming.
2: I could see the tight supply coming, and the strategy paper I put to the Cooper Energy Board talked about exactly that. Yes. It's played out, though, a lot stronger than I had expected. Yes. Than I think anybody had expected, particularly in the last six months or so. But there's one thing you can't forget about energy, and the, it is that the world needs it. It's not something that you can do do without. So it then becomes a case of how can it be best be allocated. I don't think sitting in a classroom, doing lots of analysis on computers, actually teaches you that. A lot of it is intuition and a sense of, well, I just know this is what's likely to happen here. They say a farmer knows his land. Yes. Um, He can't write down exactly what to do, but he just knows what to do when. And that comes out of experience, probably handed down through generations in some cases. In my case, it's a few decades of swimming in the same pool and really understanding the insights. And when you see a sign saying, hang on, that sign tells me this. It's off the back of that that really we've built. A team has built Cooper Energy.
1: The tie-up between the gas fields and the plant has been significant. The recent complete acquisition of Orbost has now put you in a fairly premium position on that. Is that been a, a general theme in terms of your thinking? Like, in, uh, the ultimate was going to be this.
3: This no, is where we were going to end no,
2: up. No, no, it wasn't. Right. No, no. We, the chairman and I, were having a conversation just the other day when we first got involved in the Gippsland and we had 100%, we thought bringing in partners was what was going to be needed, and we'd probably end up with around about 35%. Yes. What we did was we partnered with, with APA and sold the plant to them. They developed it, upgraded it, and it's been challenged. Look, I don't think the last the last 18 months hasn't been easy. It's been tough. But the fundamentals of the strategy were right. The market environment was right. And so we acquired the plant back and now have a lot more flexibility than what we previously had contemplated. In fact, to be fair, we're probably in a, a bigger position today than we'd ever thought we would be. Yes. When I think back through my career, it probably is the same for Woodside with its own LNG business and it's probably the same with BG and its LNG business. It's, um, if the fundamentals are right, things can be a lot bigger than you than you might initially have thought.
1: The, the end-to-end capability at Gippsland is also replicated in Otway Correct. in terms of you've got a 50% ownership in the Athena gas plant. Hmm. Right, so those two hubs are now end-to-end capable and then they supply into your domestic customers.
2: Yes, they and we focus very much on the domestic market. So
1: that focus, and that's what I was going to ask you about, in terms of the focus on domestic versus export, because that's where the contention comes to in the current climate where we've got gas supply shortages. But before I do, there's just if we go right back, you did a masters in technology. And and I say that because I know you said it was industrial and, and engineering in today's terms. But it's quite interesting where you did a masters in technology and the nature of Cooper's business is largely technology driven. And the subsea platforms, I think, is a really fascinating area to discuss for the listener because I suppose when you grow up and think about oil and gas, you're thinking about large oil rigs, you're thinking about big plant protruding out of the ocean. But in the case of Cooper, we've got subsea platforms,
2: subsea wells. Yeah, subsea, subsea there's wells. No, there's no platform no, at sub- all. It's all sitting on the on the seabed. Sorry, mm, subsea mm, wells. Mm, mm.
1: My terminology is wrong, but I was just—it's being—it's being operated out of a desk in an office. Correct. Could you just give us a bit of an insight? Because from an environmental perspective, this is quite interesting.
2: To me, I, I mean, I, firstly, I think you've given me a little bit more credit than I'm that I'm due when it comes to technology. I, um, I,
1: I just thought it was a nice parallel. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um, but we have some very smart people, and we partner with some very smart companies. Right. Yes. The, the wells that we have and we produce from are what we call subsea wells. So they drill with a standard big rig and then everything is laid on the seabed and controlled through umbilicals, which is basically sending the signals out to the wells, the wells coming back to the laptop, the computer, and we're producing, controlling the wells from behind a laptop. And so when COVID hit, It didn't belt us quite the way it belted some people that were required to move on and off large platforms. This subsea wells are, I'm going to say, relatively new technology in terms of oil and gas they are, but effectively it's remote operations. We're operating uh, fields remotely, and I think it is the way of the future. Um, Now in the the northern hemisphere, you've got uh, subsea compressors. You've got massive compressors sitting on the seabed. And I think it is, it is the way of the future. From an environmental point of view, it is out of sight, but it's not out of mind. Right. We have the same environmental constraints on ourselves that you would typically have on a platform. Obviously, some of it is a little bit easier. But, you know, working with the fishing industry, what we can and can't do, um, when we can and can't do it, our constraints or the regulations that we work within are, are just the same as the large platforms. Yes. But... Our footprint is very small, relatively very small.
1: That's very interesting. David, I also want to reflect back on company values because I know this values of a company is what is really quite dear to you, particularly when you reflect on your own personal values you've built over a long period of time. When I was looking through the Cooper Energy playbook and I looked at the values Care, integrity, fairness and respect, transparency, collaboration, awareness, commitment. It really does sing from a similar songbook that you have built over a period of time. Tell me, how important is this to you in running the business?
2: It's number one. Right. Number one. We won't do anything that compromises our values. And if we have a very tough decision, and we have had some tough decisions, we will look at our values and Nine times out of 10, or 10 times out of 10, the values will tell you the answer. Uh, And that's being true. That's being true to yourself. Yes. It's also a unifying force because it it means you're making decisions for the right reasons. Yes, it's true. And I will make sure that I interview everybody that we recruit into Cooper Energy, not early, but before the final final offer and I'm not going to talk to the person about their suitability for the job technically or just skill-wise. I have a conversation with them to understand them and to see, assess their ability to fit with our values and it's quite surprising where some of those conversations go But you really get to find out most of the time who the person is and off the back of that, yep, they're going to work with our values or we're going to be good it's a fit. we're going to be good for them and they're going to be good for us.
3: Yes, yeah.
1: Now, thanks for sharing because I know it was it's a really important mm. part of of the way you have operated. It in.
2: defines us. It, we say our values guide us.
1: David, that that brings me to gas sales and prices. And look, I just wanted to in the lead up to us being able to get together, it's become quite interesting in terms of the observations being made by various parts of Australia, particularly on the supply shortage. And I, I just wanted to sort of go back and if I started out with the first article that I came across, getting away with too much, Australia's energy market operator intervenes in gas market to stave off energy crisis, the age, July 19. Then the second one I came across was quite interesting as well in terms of Victoria gas shortage triggers emergency measures written by senior journalist Richard Wood on the July 20th for 9 News. I just saw the national energy operator activated emergency measures to guarantee gas supplies for Victoria amid concerns the state faces a winter shortage. Why the shortfall? Richard writes, Victorian gas prices are cheaper, the only state in which a 40 dollar per gigajoule price cap on gas remains in force to limit increasing wholesale prices. Gas demand in Victoria is generally three times higher in winter compared with summer due to cold temperatures. The third one, which I thought was quite important because it quotes you, was written in The Australian on July 21. So we're three days in a row here from different organisations. Victoria demands immediate measures to prevent gas supply crisis. Victoria is demanding immediate measures to stave off a looming gas supply crisis, including giving the market operator clout to control the amount of gas available at a crucial storage facility in Victoria's southwest that is running dangerously low. Gas producers see things differently. David Maxwell, Managing Director of Cooper Energy, which supplies the Victorian ga- market from gas fields in the Gippsland and Opsway, Otway basins, said demand for gas has been growing at levels people didn't expect while supply remained tight because of underinvestment with only a handful of producers in the southeast. That pushes prices up, he said. Your quote comes back to a really interesting point, which you had experience with BG Group. Maxwell said the big coal seam gas projects in Queensland required scale linked to international export markets to make economic sense, making it hard to separate out gas for domestic use. Exclamation mark. There's no exclamation mark there, but that's where I've put it. There was a bigger gas shortage looming before the development of the coal seam gas industry for LNG in Queensland, he said. The coal seam gas for LNG in Queensland has brought more supply into the market. It gives us a basis to talk for hours. But
2: from what you're seeing, David, just tell us a little bit about what's happening there. You've got a crash between, some would call it a clash, some would call it a crash between what society wants and what can be achieved. Um, It is absolutely the right thing, in my view, that we continue to develop new forms of energy and we do everything we can to clean up the environment. There's no doubt about that. But you can only do it at the best, the fastest pace you can do it. You can't wish for something that is not achievable. And that's the crash that we've got occurring at the moment. And we have really suffered in Eastern Australia through a lack of energy policy and clarity. I was fortunate enough 13, 14 years ago, myself and two others, to be the reference group for what was the last energy policy that was ever drafted in Australia. It was a white paper, was drafted. The insights I got from participating in that work was, was fantastic. But the energy policy never saw the light of day for political reasons. Right. Had it seen the light of day, I don't think we would be sitting in quite the situation that we are today. So it's what's the lesson in that or what's the insight in that is you get what you plan for. Yes. And if you don't plan, you don't get. And this is a crash that we've seen coming for some some time, I have to say, it's probably more severe than everybody had expected, and one of the reasons for that is because I think people are being a little impractical about what they wish for, and people the the wells haven't been drilled, the resource hasn't been discovered that's needed to meet to meet the demands of market, and why hasn't why haven't the wells been drilled? Because Society generally has been wanting to turn its back on fossil fuels, and the rise in gas demand recently is largely off the back of electricity supply interruptions concerns coal fired power stations um not being not performing as forecast or being down for maintenance um and the gap gets filled with gas in the electricity system, yes. And gas, sorry, energy is becoming a bit like oxygen and clean air. Society just demands it, and that's the situation we've got ourselves in now. It was quite easy to see that this was going to be the case, but we've we've allowed it we've allowed it to be, and it's it's an opportunity that we're now looking to we're looking to grow off.
1: To put some more colour around that, what? Uh, the main users of the gas out of Victoria, which is capped at $40, is that coming from domestic users within Victoria or coming from other states? No, most
2: of the gas in Victoria is supplied out of the Gippsland Basin. Yes, um, and consumed particu- by... Consumed by industry and commerce and homes. In, um,
1: within Victoria or interstate?
2: Most of it is within Victoria. Yes. But a week or so back, Victoria closed the borders effectively, and said that you know, the gas that comes into Victoria from offshore needs to stay in Victoria. Yes.
1: And so the solution to bring gas down from Queensland to supplement supply, is that coming down to offset the requirement from New South Wales? or uh,
2: No, it's coming down to supply Victoria, New, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. Right, yeah, across yeah, the yeah, three, across three the bottom three, states. Across the three. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And that Queensland gas supply, to your quote, they are having to now try and work out of their supply, which is pretty much positioned for international export. Now, what's coming down?
2: Correct. Yes. And that's the difficulty. Now, the, the the difficulty is, they have the LNG projects have export contracts with their customers, um. So they they're committed. Yes. And how do they make extra gas available to supply into the domestic market? I have to say, no gas producer is not going to supply the market. To think that the gas producers are going to turn their back on the domestic market, the LNG producers just won't do that. No. Um, it's what's the what's the most orderly manner in which that is is managed. Yes, and you can't just suddenly magic gas from point A to point B. You've they've got to have the pipeline transport capacity in place and at the moment that pipeline transport capacity is pretty full right it's almost fully utilized so there's not a lot of scope to move big volumes of gas out of queensland into southeast australia at the moment and new pipelines don't you don't magic them either they take no they they take years major pieces of infrastructure major pieces of infrastructure that's right so I think we've got a tension that's perhaps not as severe as what we've seen in 2022, but we've got a tension between supply and demand that's going to live with us for, for a few years, that's for sure.
1: So let's just position then Cooper in that regard, and how are you seeing it from all your years of experience and knowing what you've got that end-to-end capacity now in place from both of your hubs? How do you see it unfolding in terms of the supply into these These
2: requirements. We're opportunity rich right now for a company We're probably we've. What was important for us was to get operatorship, get ownership of Orbost, and then, as you say, the two hubs. What we can then optimise across the two hubs. We've got development, which is the next step of production growth, and exploration opportunities in both the Otway and the Gippsland. There's a lead time on these projects of. Typically two, three, up to four years, and obviously there's a balance sheet needed to to fund it. But we've this year we've just reached record production, and we will, on our current forecasts, be having record production year on year. At the moment, I think this year's 3.3 million barrels of oil equivalent, and we've got plans in place which pretty clearly take us to 10 million barrels of oil equivalent over the next four or five years and that's generating, that's generating a lot of cash. It's a case of our business is very capital intensive up front and then significant cash flow once it's, once it's online. So it is a case of optimising the funding um, and pacing ourselves to maximise that value for shareholders. Um, there's market. The market is there. Yes. We've got the resource. It's a case of doing it at the right speed. Is
1: that domestic supply to those partners that we went through earlier, is that the main source at the moment? Or once you meet that supply, would you look to export?
2: No, we're focused on the domestic. Domestic supply, Um, And it's a different – the exports is a completely different business. I have this thing that you've got to have a competitive advantage. You've got to have some – and we don't have the balance sheet. We don't have the size. We don't have the relationships as a company to play in the LNG space. That's for much bigger organisations than ours.
1: So dedicated, domestic supplier, yes, ready to serve yes. that Victorian space.
2: Yes, very much so, and that's what. And we built our expertise around that. So we've got people that really understand the energy markets in Southeast Australia, how they work, the gas works, how the electricity works, how the gas and electricity interact, and they're talking to customers every day.
1: Gosh, it it seems it seems fairly exciting. From, from Cooper's uh, perspective
2: <laughs> It is exciting we've had a lot the last 18 months two years for those that have been involved with the company it's been it's been difficult um, we've had our challenges but the strategy has been right um, the external environment has played out exactly or better than we'd expected the challenges that we had at Orbost in terms of getting that plant up to its nameplate capacity we're slowly we're slowly dealing with those um, so it's been a It's been a challenging 18 months, but I have to say, full credit to the team. It's stuck together. This year is going to be a good year.
1: Thanks for sharing this, David. It's really interesting and I think really, really insightful for anyone who's wanting to learn about the gas market and the positioning that's going on at the moment, particularly when you look at Cooper's opportunity set. When I was looking at the emerging themes of your presentation, and we've just talked about the Southeast Australia gas supply. But, you know, energy market volatility and increasing energy prices. I was reading over the weekend, ExxonMobil and Chevron both reported massive quarters. Exxon's profit at $17.6 billion, nearly double its previous quarter, and up 273% on the same quarter a year ago. Chevron earned $11.4 billion up 74% from the previous quarter and up 247% from a year ago. Now, I was reading this on CNN. So I just caught the article and I thought, this is quite amazing. Where do you see this going? I mean, man, with your deep understanding of the energy markets internationally as well, how do you see it unfolding, particularly with the Russian-Ukraine crisis? Because we know that Russia is a big supplier of oil we're looking at the impact on Chevron and Exxon in this particular instance for the last quarter. How is it going to unfold, do you think? There's no easy answer, I'm sure, but just interested in your thoughts.
2: Well, firstly, I think it's going to unfold differently to how people expect. And why do I say that? Because I have a view that hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, are needed by society And it's a case of doing it in a way that's balanced and cleans up the environment at the same time. If you don't invest, you don't grow, and therefore supply gets tight and prices go up, which is exactly what we've seen. I think that the number of players in the game is going to get smaller, and that's because cash flow becomes important, and those with strong cash flows will get stronger. Those without, Strong cash flows will will struggle. I think that you'll start to see the privatisation and private equity moving to the energy space more and more. You're already seeing it in coal, right? I think you'll see it more in oil, and then further down the track in gas as well. I think that there's a funny there's a funny co relationship that is last that' been in been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that is that the co-relationship between population and energy is almost one to one so as a population grows, energy demand grows and What we've seen over time and it's you know I'm talking hundreds of hundreds of years, yes, is that energy forms grow and then they don't actually decline, they flat line. And the new energy forms come in and grow on top. So the growth over time is coming from more and more new energies. And there's new energy. There are new energy forms out there which today we don't know about. Um, we don't conceive that our you know, generations that come after us will be living off. And so it's an evolution. It's not a. It's not to freeze frame. It's not. It's not the, this is the way it's always going to be. No. So the other thing that people often forget. Now here I'm talking about gas is that gas is not just a fuel, gas is a feedstock. Gas goes into anything plastic, anything synthetic, not anything synthetic, but a lot of synthetics as well. So it's a necessity yes, for the world. And I think that we're going to see the value of energy. Energy has probably been undervalued by society and it's events like the need to make sure that we've got a clean environment to make sure that prices are reasonable that people start to appreciate the true value of, of energy and in Australia we're incredibly fortunate as well we've got an abundance of it yes. in, in whatever form I also have a view that probably the most natural form of energy for the world but there's still quite a lot of resistance is nuclear Um, it's clean Yes. technology's got a f- an amazing way of fixing problems, and I think with time we'll see. My expectation be well beyond my time, but I think with time we'll see more. We'll see more nuclear primary energy it's as well.
1: Well, one of the points that's made in your presentation is the transition to cleaner fuels. Mm. Um, you're seeing nuclear as part of that process, very much so. Gas being part of it in the in the short to medium term, or in a longer term. I uh, know
2: short short to medium term, yes. and I think coal as well. And, that, and what you'll see is you'll see the really good quality coals continue to grow. You remember one third of the world still doesn't have electricity. Yes, and the environment is not the domain of a country; the the environment is the domain of the globe, mm. and we have to think about the other third and they're entitled to have electricity they're entitled to have some of the benefits that that we have and I, i'm i'm hope my one hope is that with time we get to think about it more globally rather than just thinking about it from a country only perspective
1: yes that pressure on stable electricity supply is not only a domestic issue, for example, in Victoria, where it's going to become,
2: or South Australia, or where, South they had, Australia. where they had where uh, they had blackouts. Yes, um, and it's when you haven't got it that people realise just how important it is, yeah. and our everyday lives are dependent on electricity.
1: Absolutely. I was talking to a friend who who lives in the top of Switzerland, and he said their family is starting to use their their heat is less because they're being asked to start slowing Rationally. down on their electricity. Yeah. And
2: he said he said it's quite a real thing. Yeah, well, in the Europe, there's been a huge dependence on Russia, and obviously, the, well, it's where it's coming. That's from. where it's coming from, and yeah. they're just applying the pressure. That's. Uh, I think that's the other thing that I would say. is – the world has become smaller and smaller over the last 20 30 years with companies, countries becoming specialist in areas and products going to the place where they can best be produced or generated. I think what we'll start to see is people becoming a little bit more self-sufficient. I wouldn't be surprised if the pendulum swings swings back a bit and you see a little bit more self-sufficiency within within countries and a little less dependence on everything being imported. Yes, which we're so. seeing in Germany. Yes, we are. Yes, yes.
1: David, thanks a lot for sharing all that with us. I'm I, mindful of time, but I, I do know just to sort of put in perspective your achievements through that period. In 2001, I noticed that you were awarded the Silver Flame Award uh, when you were with Woodside. And I just was wondering, could you explain that you're the recipient of the Australian Gas Association Silver Flame Award for your contribution to the gas industry? Now, at in two thousand and one, you'd been with Woodside for a while, but that must have been a huge honour.
2: Oh, to be recognised by your peers this is a huge honour. Yes, yeah. it was, and it was um, it was a surprise, to be honest. And it was, I think, it was mainly for the work I'd done and growing the domestic gas business. Yes. Of, the Northwest Shelf and the team that we led, and it was a team. But uh, look, one of the unfortunate things in these circumstances is that you know, awards go to people, yes. whereas they should go to organizations or they should go to teams.
1: But just a huge honor, as you say, the Australian Gas Association Silver Flame Award, how long's that been going for? And uh, just to well put a that... bit of context on it.
2: You know, the the Australian Gas Association doesn't exist now. It's been absorbed into other organisations and that's really the migration of the the energy business. Um, And we think we're going to see the next round of that in the next decade where industry associations or industries structure around products. And as products change and as industries change, then the industry associations change. So, yeah, that got absorbed into... A number of other industry associations
1: yeah, and but there's been some um, I mean I was just doing the background in terms of who else has won it. there's quite some enormous names that have won
2: it. yeah, fortunate, very
1: fortunate <laughs> <laughs> and there was you're now I mean you're on a director and a member of a various company boards, industry and government organizations, but I, I just you're on the board of the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, on the board of the Minerals and Energy Advisory Council. You're a member for the Queensland Resources Council?
2: Uh was. Was? Was. Was, okay. Yes.
1: And are you still involved with the Australian Japan Business Cooperation Committee? No,
2: I wasn't. No, not not now. Not but, now, but I, you were. No, I right. Was. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you've I mean you've clearly given back into the industry and and you also won an award, the John Doran Award?
2: Yes, that was a few years ago now. Probably what, five years ago. John Doran was one of Australia's famous oil and gas explorers. Yes, and um, I was surprisingly awarded that uh, four or five years ago. It's associated with a conference that they have here in Perth. Right. They award it to somebody once a year.
1: A lifetime achievement award. Yes. Well, congratulations.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean that's
1: two. Two. I'm not sure if they're widely known, David, those awards. But you know, when you put that in context of your other roles within the industry, your achievements have been phenomenal. And look. I'm not here to just sort of say that, but it is clear and evident that you know what you've done and given to the oil and gas industry has been quite amazing.
2: Thank you. I think the oil and gas industry has probably given me a lot more, <laughs> um, to be honest, a lot more fun, yes, and a lot more sense of achievement and, I'm going to say, worth. You know, you've um, you, when you feel you can make a difference, it, it's quite satisfying, and that's probably what's driven me.
1: Yes. If I was just to move a little bit sideways, you're a father. You've got two beautiful kids. You've uh, in, you've looked at influ- – if you look at influences in your life, how have you looked back and gone, right, well, I mean, your your dad clearly had a big role to play with you, and I would pick up that university had quite a big role to play.
2: Correct. You yes, know, very big.
1: How do you find this in terms of being a dad and then that work-life balance and and your – and the mentors that have given you insights and how you've been able to convey that yourself. Because you look to me, from my observations, as a person that's quite generous with your time in terms of mentoring and things like that.
2: I get a lot of fun out of it. In terms of our own children, look, when they were growing up, some of the most fun times was actually going every weekend to their sports events or attending the different, Concerts, performances, whatever, and yeah. I made I made a commitment. Someone once told me, and I stuck with it, that you know if your child's got a concert on and you say you're going to go, you've actually got to go. You can't not go. Yes. So my I used to have my calendar moved around. Now since the kids, um, they're both in the young thirties now, grown up, but uh, they, you know, have their own lives yes. now, and. To be fair, I think I probably could have spent more time with them post school than I have It would be one of my my regrets, but they've each gone and done their own thing i mean there's a, maybe there's a maybe there's a trend here yes, Sam, our son, he did law commerce at university and decided he didn't want to be a lawyer he didn't want to work the hours his father worked he's gone off and done his own thing, which is built around sport sports management and coaching and uh that's he's he's rolled his passion and his job into the same into the same thing, which is great, good on him and uh our daughter she's probably smarter than she realizes, and uh she's doing a lot of work in the mental health space at the moment right um she's a physio by training but now growing her career, growing herself into the in the mental health space very um, important oh hugely important yes. and that's if there's one area that I think is a growth area for the next generation, it's, it's around mental health. There's yes. no, no doubt about it.
1: And you, looking forward, you know, you you can see where your time's going to be spent at some point?
2: We, we're very fortunate. We've got a holiday house down south yes. here in WA. And if it was just me, I'd be a hermit down <laughs> there very very comfortably. <laughs> but uh, it's not just me. And obviously there's a social life to be had as well. But I like to, there'll be a time when it's time to to, to get off the full, full-time full work. But I will always be doing something yes. to give back in, in some way. I think that came from, to be honest, that came from my father.
3: Yes.
1: I must say, I watched the Irish play The All Blacks recently. I know they went down, <laughs> David, but they're a very impressive uh, outfit. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure you. I'm sure you still persevere with with watching the rugby.
2: I do persevere with watching the rugby, but I've also changed my colours. Oh, have you? Yeah, I think Australia's given me more opportunities, so I now barrack for Australia. The Wallabies. Yeah. Uh, one of the Anne and I. One of the best holidays we had was going to the World Cup in the UK, and uh, as fate would have it, it was an All Blacks Wallabies final. Oh. Um But uh, I had a. Wallabies jumper on, but I had a black singlet underneath. And uh, (laughs) as it turns out, the All Blacks won. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, look, David, I just want to, on behalf of Euros Hartleys, I do sincerely say thank you for taking the time out. It really has been a wonderful opportunity and an experience to be able to have this chat. You've demonstrated, and I've picked this up through looking through your history, but just the companies you work for and your your vast knowledge, your passion. But I think your understanding of your craft and your industry is is so visual and so understanding. I can see in the body language that you are so entwined with it, with that you want to see the best for the industry and you want to see the best for the consumer and the people you work with. and And it's a, it's a real, I take my hat off to you in terms of your career and what you've been able to achieve. And to be able to hear it firsthand, particularly in light of what you've been able to see and then imparting it to where we are at the moment has been a real treat. And so I just want to say thanks very much for taking the time out on behalf of us all and the listeners.
2: Thank you very much. And it's been thoroughly enjoyable telling the story. Good on you, David,
1: and all the best with everything. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian Wealth Management and Diversified Financial Services Company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at eurosheartleys.com or visit our website at www.eurosheartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Heartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.